0: Hello oh, and welcome to the podcast podcast the one true chapter by chapter podcast going through of Ice and fire one chapter a week i'm your host jeff better known as brennan p fish and i'm your other host emmett better known as poor quentin Welcome to the 114th episode of the DottoCast, titled "The Fiery Ladder," an analysis of a clash of kings, Daenerys three, in which Danny acquires a bunch of weird treasure, uses it to bribe a bunch of bored aristocrats with no results, and then watches a trippy magic show. Man, is this like an average Saturday night for you, Emmett?
1: <laughs> Maybe in my twenties, but now in my thirties, at the end of my life. <laughs> no, this is still pretty much what I'm doing. Yeah, yeah, you nailed it, Jeff. <laughs>
0: So, as always, this episode is brought to you by our small council, our Hand of the King Wolfman, Zach, Grand Maester Timbop, Lord Commander of the Kingsguard, Mark N., Lord Travis, Master of Ships and War of the Waves, Sir Keith J., Master Whispers, Lord Phil the Merciful, Master of Laws, Archmaster June, Heal of the Lesser Poxes, Ragged Michael, Ward of the North, Nelson the Hammer, Prince of Dragon Scone, Scarlet, the other Red Woman, and Mistress Whispers, Lord Micah, Ward of the West, and the Kraken's Bane, Lord James, the Gym that was promised, the high bearded priest, Lord Jacobs Assistant to the hand of the king, Lady Zina Valerian, Hedrigal, Captain of the Airship Arrogance, His Grace's High Inquisitor, Sir Frank B. Sir Jasper the Cruel, the King's Justice, Lawrence, Prince of Dorne, Kelly, one of the East and Mistress of Old, Bay of Crabs, Steve the Steadfast, Master of Hounds, The Blue Winter Rose, Knight of High Garden. Lady Stephanie, Lord Anonymous, Lord Carlos, Lord Andrew the Restless, the Priest of the Drowned God, The King's Cook, Noli, Oli, Master of Cannoli, Sir Sorcedelica, Prince, Matthew of House Targaryen, Proud, Soy Boy of Summerhall, Defender of the Fifth Book, and Swing, Dancer with Dragons, Sir K.W. Dent, Elsie the Blackwood, Guard, and Batman of the Seven Kingdoms, Lord Pension for Nostalgia, Queer, Alex, Rainbow Commander of the Ladies and Gentle Them's, Lord Quint Esquire, master of absolutely, absolutely positively not serving as a spy for several unnamed high lois and Ladies in order to further the secret Blackfire-style conspiracy to overthrow the oppressive small council. Haldiver, the Waiter for Tiwau, A.A. Ron, Dampere, Prophet of the Forsaken, and High Priest of Euron Crozai, Lieutenant Glenn, Lord of H-Town, Vanaris of House Colgarian, the First for Dame, Princess of Dragonstone, Mistress of Art, the Overworked, Queen of the Pencils, the Eraser in the First Draft, Queen of Monochrome, Devotee of the Great Game of Thrones, Poachers of the Realm, Lady Realist of the Seven Kingdoms, Blender Paints, and Maker of Drawings, Shamal the Slayer, Lord Adam T., Lady Alexander of Tarth, Sir Christoph Logos, Bloody Scorpion of the Red Field, Defender of the Letter of Kin, and the Wolverine of House Corgo, Lady Elizabeth, Mistress of Horse, Face Lesbians, Sir Josh Snow, Bastard Bounty Hunter of the North, Surveyor, Chief of Parties of the Frozen wastes Lord Peter, Lady Ashley, Lady Raj, Mistress of Horse, The Dead Shepherd Reborn, Preacher of the Poor Fellows, Marshal Harrison, Absent, Shipwrecked in the Jade Sea, Grave Rob Stark, The Cadaver King, and Horror of Heron Hall, Lord George, um, sorry, God. I had to do this again. <laughs> Lord George, oh, I'm sorry, sorry, I'll just have to get off my chest. I fear that if I don't say, come out and say it, I'll check it out again. So here goes. I actually find quite to be a wonderful character, and Karth is probably my favorite location in the whole series. I've just been too afraid to admit it out of fear that what my co-host would think of me. There, I feel There, I feel relieved to finally admit it. Anyway, we're always like, oh yeah, Lord George R.R. R. Michael. And finally, Sir Tim, the knight who's guided by voices. Thank you to the counselors very much. Thank you as always to all
1: our counselors, and That whole Quaith speech we make you do is perfectly (laughs) relevant for this episode. It's just such perfect timing, really.
0: The last time the Quaith ever appears in person the narrative is the time I get to do that um do that that speech and i guess i could get, just keep doing it for forever for the next like 230 chapters of a song of ice and fire such as your penitence not. for all your sins mm-hmm. so many so many sins <laughs> so our spoiler as we say in all episodes we'll potentially be talking about all published books that is the five novels three dug big histories interviews the windsor sample chapters as well as game of Thrones tv show anything and everything so before we actually get to this week's questions, we wanted to shout out our friends at the relatively new podcast called Unspun Yarn, which you can find on YouTube. Nessie the elusive, Ward of the Neek, <laughs> Ward of the Neek, Ward of the Neck, Defender of the North, and Keeper of Secrets is doing live streams on YouTube where she tackles topics such as Duck and the Tall, Garth Greenhands, and most recently a whole ap- a whole episode about dragons. Given that this is our first episode to feature dragons in a little while, and that happens to coincide with Nessie's most recent stream at Sanrixium who was an artist that we were all f- big fans of, we felt it only appropriate to shout out Nessie at Unspun Yarn and to ask you guys to check out her YouTube channel and to go and uh, support her because she's great and she's lovely. She's one of the best people and she is, uh, I don't know how much I should say, she is doing a lot of great things in the real world, which I uh, you guys will all appreciate. So thank you very much, Nessie, for your support and please go check out Unspun Yarn
1: absolutely Nessie is the best both as a person and within the fandom and we're so pleased that Unspun Yarn is going on yes you should check out her dragon episode especially and yeah we're so we're always so happy to see people working in the fandom it just makes us so so pleased mm-hmm. so our question this week comes from Septon Eastwood of Inchford Isle one of our high lords who asks here's my probably overly complicated question <laughs> Tolkien's work Tolkien's work had a very defined metaphysics. It was a basically theistic world so that the gods of Alar were essentially angelic beings and elves, humans, dwarves, etc. were creations of Iluvatar. What do you think George's metaphysical view of his world is? Or does his world differ from Tolkien's in that George has a more agnostic understanding of the various forces in his world? So what do you think, Jeff? <laughs> you know, Tolkien was coming from a perspective, an almost godlike view of his world in terms of creating these beings first and thinking about the world they created. How do you think George conceives of the, the metaphysics of his universe? You know, what's, what's behind the sky, the beings that created the world? How do you think he thinks about it?
0: So and I'm not a Tolkien scholar so feel free to come oh, me and, come back and correct me but from what I understand a lot of the magic flows from Eluvitar and from these angelic supernatural beings and that's why we have things like wizards who can do magic and shit in the Tolkien verse. It's not the same for A Song of Ice and Fire. There's not like a series of gods that are standing up above everyone, and that is where all of the magical power is flowing from. I think we talked about this specifically in A Game of Thrones, and maybe at the end of A Game of Thrones, and at least Brand's first chapter in Clash of Kings, about how what seems to be animating George is this idea of a non-theistic magical source of magical power that's animating the world because the magic does exist in a song of ice and fire but it just doesn't seem to have a a theistic origin. So it's supernatural, so it's above the natural world, the werewood trees, Melisandre's magic, being able to light you know eagles on fire and bring them down during the battle of the wall. These are all things that are existing in a song of ice and fire, but they're not being caused by relore or the old gods or by the faith of the seven because the faith of the seven don't fucking exist. But they are being caused by some sort of supernatural power that exists outside of the natural order. So I think that is a very different take on the metaphysics of a fantasy worldview. I think that George has kind of embodied a lot of his own agnostic slash weak atheism into the narrative itself. And that's not a bad thing. I just think it's it tends to be different from Tolkien's world. But again, I'm not a Tolkien scholar. So if anyone comes back at me and says, actually, it's like this, I'll accept what Every it is you have to say Because you know I'm right now Just trying to read The first book Again for the first time In like 17 18 years I want to say So anyways Enough from me what do, what do you think About this question Emmett
1: I think for me George is adopting A slightly different perspective When it comes to the metaphysics Not even a statement About reality So much as Whose eyes He sees his universe through I think he thinks Of the world of A slung of ice and fire Through the eyes Of the people living in it And I think While certainly Tolkien it You know cared deeply about his characters and Invested a lot of them he, I think he saw them from the eyes of, you know, one of the gods in his universe. And I think George is interested in where reality kind of... He's interested in the kind of the frontiers beyond which your understanding and your knowledge fails and you kind of have to project. I think he's thinking about the world, his world through the eyes of someone like Samuel Tarley, Or the people arguing at the beginning of A Feast for Crows in Old Town at the Citadel. But what's, what's the nature of things? I think George is passionately interested in the quest for truth. I think maybe more interested in the quest itself than truth, which is you know the the journey is more than the destination it can be very a pat and glib thing, but I think that you know he's interested in what people become on the way towards whatever may be over the horizon, and I think that tantalizing possibility I think is something he captures really well. I don't think it's necessarily one to one thing that because George has you know for, you know is is less of a, a theistic mind than Tolkien in general. I don't think that necessarily dictates the laws of his universe. I just think it dictates the limits he puts on us and what he allows us to know. I think that's that's the perspective he's coming from.
0: I think it's a really interesting one. I think that maybe that is something I should take in more consideration that it wouldn't matter if George was or wasn't theistic in his own outlook that he ended up writing this universe simply because he thought it was a more interesting story to have it being told through the perspective of people as opposed to of the gods so anyways that's, uh, that's, that's a good point I'll have to uh, kind of feather that in my own cap as I think about A Song of Ice and Fire going forward
1: I mean obviously again Tolkien obviously you know he loved like you know Sam his own Sam and ended the Lord of the Rings with him but I think I think George it's not that George couldn't write a Silmarillion for A Song of Ice and Fire I think it's more that he just wouldn't and I mm. think that's that's not a perspective he wants us to have and if he if it's a perspective that exists at all it's one he keeps to himself mm-hmm so, thank you, Septon Eastwood, for the question. If you'd like to ask us questions that we'll answer here on the Nauticast podcast, you are welcome to become a Sworn Sword or High Level Patron over at patreon.com slash A-S-O-I-A-F where You can find show notes, access to our a Slack for our two highest tiers, and bonus episodes like part one of The Second Coming, our four part analysis of the Winds of Winter sample chapter, The Forsaken, which, if you're listening to this on the general release, Nate, is out now for all our $5 and above
0: patrons. Mm-hmm. In that episode, we covered all of the pre Winds of Winter Ironborn material, focusing on the meta of how the Ironborn came into a Song of Ice and Fire, the Ironborn plot lines from Clash and Storm, but we really, really got deep on the King's mood and what Euron does in the Shield Isle. So, If you're a patron, obviously come over and listen to that episode. It's actually. It might be my new favorite. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see. I feel like I say that every month, but for a long time, the Joy Rebellion episode is my favorite, but I'm feeling like this episode is really, really strong, and I'm very excited to get into all the other episodes for the Forsaken in the next couple months, For actually for the rest of the summer. But enough about Patreon. When we last checked in with Daenerys Targaryen, she had fucked off to and in Karth for an entire chapter. Let's see if this chapter in A Clash of Kings is the only good Karth chapter in A Song of Ice and Fire in this synopsis of A Clash of Kings Daenerys 3. The drapes kept out the dust and heat of the streets, but they could not keep out disappointment. As they say in the biz, this is not the most poetic way to kick off a chapter, but it's functional. Danny gets inside the palaquin as her blood riders clear the streets of Carthene. Zara reclines across from her, asking why she's sad. Is it because your dreams are dead? That would be very, very sad. A dream delayed no more. Danny's tight silver collar was chafing against her throat. She unfastened it and flung it aside. The collar was set with an enchanted amethyst that Azaro swore would ward her against all poisons. The pureborn were notorious for offering poisoned wine to those they thought dangerous, but they had not thought to give Danny so much as a cup of water. They never saw me for a queen, she thought bitterly. I was only an afternoon's amusement. A horse girl with a curious pet. Rhaegal doesn't like Danny getting so down on herself, so he hisses and claws her shoulder. Danny winces from the pain and moves the dragon to the closed side of her body. Danny is now ticking after all the latest in Karthine fashions a boob exposed, silver sandals, black and white belt. But it did fuck all, so she drinks the wine. Danny thinks about the ruling structure of Karth pureborn command the ships and guards she wanted that fleet and some of those soldiers and she did all the right things sacrifices and bribes primarily and she'd even been invited to the hall of a thousand thrones only to find a bunch of pale-ass weirdos who didn't give a shit about anything wait 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 is karth fantasy tampa is that what i'm getting from this scene from from clash of kings probably they are milkmen indeed they never meant to help me they came because they were curious they came because they were bored and the dragon on my shoulder interested them more than i did Zaro tells Danny to tell him what the Pureborne said, and Danny reports that they said no, very politely. Zoro wonders if she flattered them. Yes, did she cry? Fuck that! Crying is for commies. Actually, the dragon doesn't cry, is what she says. But anyways, it's a it's a good joke. Zoro sighs and says she should have wept. Danny remembers that a few of those assholes cried after refusing her. But Danny is really only sad about the bribe she wasted in these Jenko wearing tampons. Maybe she could get her money back? Uh, no. I mean, you could try, but you'll get your ass assassinated for your troubles, and not just by any old assassin, by a sorrowful man who will say that they are so very sorry after they have stabbed. You. Very polite. Anyways, Danny knows that the Pureborn won't work, but maybe she could try some of the other factions? The merchant princes, grown vastly rich off the trade between the seas, were divided into three jealous factions the Ancient Guild of Spicers, the Tormaline Brotherhood, and the Thirteen, to which Zaro belonged, each vied with the others for dominance, and all three contended endlessly with the Pureborn. And brooding over all were the warlocks with their blue lips and dread powers, seldom seen, but much feared. Are you extremely excited to learn more about the political structures of these guilds, Brotherhoods in the 13, how they operate, the detailed history of the Fuse, which they brought them to where they are today? Yeah? Yeah? Well, too fucking bad. That's all you're ever going to know about them. Carth. Said like Kirk says, con from Star Trek. Danny is thankful for Zaro. He had devised a brilliant plan to con people into buying their way into seeing Danny and her dragons. And Danny had taken the things that those people left her, gifts and such, and sold them into the market. They gave her the money for the bribes. The bribes which didn't fucking work. She did keep the crown, the three-headed dragon crown that the Tormaline Brotherhood gave to Danny, though. That was valuable for sentimental and symbolic reasons. When Viserys sold her mother's crown, it had driven him mad. And Danny did not want to end up at the same place as Viserys. I am going to quickly tiptoe away past that for the moment and report that Danny thinks I have something that Viserys never had. I have the dragons. The dragons are all the difference. Danny's blood riders snap at the people to move out of the way, and Danny thinks of Jorah, who, who was opposed to this attempt to win the Pureborn over. He was right, which I just fucking hate when Jorah is right about something in the narrative. But Zaro is still in this palanquin with Danny, and he starts asking for her hand in marriage. They can go drink super awesome wines across the Jade Sea in his pleasure barge. no. Danny wants to travel to the Arbor to drink Lord Redwine's wines. Paxter will be very definitely in support of her with his warships, right? Eh he'll be long time before you even show up, Danny. Sorry about that. Check out our episode on the Forsaken next month. Speaking of those warships, does Zaro have any that Danny can borrow to go invade Westeros? He doesn't. He only has trade ships and pledge barges. Give me the ships, and I will make you rich again. Marry me, Bright Slight, and sell the ship of my heart. I cannot sleep at night for thinking of your beauty. Danny smiled. Zaro's flowery protestations of passion amused her, but his manner was at odds with his words. While Sir Jora had scarcely been able to keep his eyes from her bare breast when he'd helped her into the palanquin, Zaro hardly deigned to notice it at all, even in those close confines. And she had seen the beautiful boys who surrounded the merchant prince flitting in through his palace halls in wisps of silk. You speak sweetly, Zaro, but are your words? I hear another no. Well, Danny's ears are working correctly, Zoro really has no interest in the Iron Throne. She could be Queen of Karth until the city dies, then they can go sailing around to Yi and drink some sort of wine of wisdom from a dead man's skull, which fucking what? Zoro, what are you fucking talking about? This, that, that ain't Danny's way though, she's going to Western to drink wine from Robert Baratheon's skull, which is so much better, I, I think. A single perfect tear ran down the cheek of Zoro's Oendoxus. Will nothing turn you from this madness? Nothing, she said, wishing she was as certain as she sounded. If each of the thirteen would lend me ten ships, you would have one hundred and thirty ships and no crew to sail them. The justice of your cause means naught to the common men of Carth. Why should my sailors care who sits upon the throne of some kingdom at the edge of the world? I will pay them to care, Danny said. Zoro asks with what money, and Danny says she'll continue to run the see my dragons in exchange for a gift scheme to get coin to bribe someone else, like the Guild of Spicers or the Tormaline Brotherhood. But Zaro says Danny will have a similar experience as she had with these pureborn. They'll flatter her, take her money, and still say no, very politely. Man, I'm really interested in these guys. Can we know a little bit more about them, George? No. Oh, okay. Then I must heed Pyatpri and go the Warlocks. The merchant prince sat up sharply, payet has blue lips and it's said that blue lips only speak lies. Heed the wisdom of one who loves you. Warlocks are bitter creatures who eat dust and drink of shadows. They will give you naught, they have naught to give. Danny protests that she wouldn't be seeking out the warlocks if it weren't for Zaro and everyone else saying no, very politely. Zaro protests that he's given her so many wonderful gifts, so much, he even gave her an army. Yes, an army. It was an army of toy knight soldiers that are about a half inch tall. But then the carriage stops, and Ago and Jogo report that there's a fire mage doing some tricks up ahead, and Danny wants to see. The fire mage had conjured a ladder up in the air, a crackling orange ladder of swirling flame that rose unsupported from the floor of the bazaar, reaching toward the high latticed roof. Danny notices that most of the spectators were foreigners to Karth. Jogo points out that one Carthine girl was pickpocketing her way around the crowd, and Danny is well aware of this practice as she saw it growing up in the Free Cities. The Fire Mage urges the flames up high as thieves work the crowd. When the ladder was 40 feet high, the Fire Mage climbs to the ladder very, very fast. He disappears at the top, and the fire ladder disappears with him. A fine trick, announced Jogo with admiration. No trick, a woman said in the common tongue. Danny had not noticed Quaith in the crowd, yet there she stood, eyes wet and shiny, behind the implacable red lacquer mask. The red lacquer mask, guys, the personality trait that is Quaith. Danny asks what Quaith means, and Quaith talks about how this guy had barely any skill a year back, but now he's got a ton of magic power, and Danny is the reason for it. Me? <laughs> she laughed. How could that be? The woman stepped closer and laid two fingers on Danny's wrist. You are the mother of dragons, are you not? She is, and no spawn of shadows may touch her. Jogo brushed Quaith's fingers away with the handle of his whip. The woman took a step backward. You must leave the city soon, Daenerys Targaryen, or he will never be permitted to leave at all. Danny's wrist still tingles where Quaith had touched her. Where would you have me to go? she asked. To go north, you must journey south. To reach the west, you must go east. To go forward, you must go back. And to touch the light, you must pass beneath the shadow. A shy, Danny thought. She would have me go to a shy. Will the Asha'i give me an army, she demanded. Will there be gold for me in Asha'i? Will there be ships? What is there in Asha'i that I will not find in Karth? Truth, said the woman in the mask. And bowing, she faded back into the crowd. Ricaro, speaking for us, snorts with contempt at Quaith and says not to trust her. And Ago agrees. Zoro, who is watching everything, also agrees with, the, with her bloodrider's contempt. He then pushes more booze on her and attempts to talk about love and lets all the way back to his manse. When they arrive back, Danny gets into more comfortable clothes, feeds her dragons some charred snake, which sounds kind of delicious if I'm being honest, and thinks about how her dragons are growing. But it would take years before they would be able to take go to war to take back Westeros. Maybe. And she has no idea even how to train her dragon. Jora shows up that evening asking what happened with the Pureborn, and Danny tells them that they refused her. Mormont says, That makes sense. They need to get out of Carth and away from Zaro. Danny puts in that Zoro asked her to bury him again, and Jora says he knows why. Danny jokes around saying that she's all about love and shit, but Jora knows better. Forgive me, my queen, but it's your dragons he dreams of. Zara assures me that in Karth, man and woman each retain their own property after they are wed. The dragons are mine. She smiled as Drogon came hopping and flapping across the marble floor to crawl up the cushion, crawl up to the cushion beside her. He tells it; it is true as far as it goes. But there's one thing he failed to mention: the Carthians have a curious Western wedding custom, my queen. On the day of their union, a wife must ask a token of love from her husband. Whatsoever she desires of his worldly goods, he must grant, and he may ask the same of her. One thing only may be asked, but whatever it is named may not be denied. Zaro once one of Danny's dragons, and if he had one, he would just rule Carth essentially. Anyhow, Danny tells Jorah about encountering Quaith and how she told him to go to Ashai. Jorah thinks leaving Karth is a splendid plan, but um, Ashai seems kind of like a bad spot to go. Instead, they should go east. Really, no spot in particular. I am half a world away from my kingdom, even here. If I go any farther east, I may never find my way home to Westeros. Jorah warns that if Danny goes west, she's endangering herself, but Danny reminds Jorah that she has friends in the free cities, like Illyrio, right? Mm. But Illyrio doesn't seem like much of a friend to Jorah he'd sell Danny off if he could. No, he wouldn't, Danny Perez. Yeah, he would, Jorah counters. He already did that once to Cal Drogo. Danny realizes that Jorah is right, but she doesn't like how fresh he was getting. She puts in a feeble defense of Illyrio that he protected Danny and Viserys because he um believed in them. Yeah, no. Illyrio is only in it for Illyrio. What does Danny actually know of Illyrio anyhow? Well, uh he gave her dragon eggs? Jora snorted. If he had known they were like to hatch, he would have sat on them himself. That made her smile despite herself. Oh, I have no doubt of that, sir. I know Illyrio better than you think. I was a child when I left his mansion, Pentos, to wed my son and stars. But I was neither deaf nor blind, and I am no child now. Jora allows that maybe Illyrio is as great of a friend as Danny thinks he is, but he's not all that powerful. He can't put her onto the Iron Throne, even if he has the money to hire, sell sales and sell swords. Sell swords have their uses, Sir Jorah admitted, but you will not win your father's throne with the sweepings from the free cities. Nothing knits a broken realm together so quick as an invading army on its soil. I am the rightful queen, Danny protested. You are a stranger who means to land on their shores with an army of outlanders who cannot even speak the common tongue. The lords of Westeros do not know you and have every reason to fear and mistrust you. You must win them over before you sail, a few at least. And Jorah is like embodying that great old onion headline heartbreaking the worst person you know just made a really great point here I just hate it when Jorah's right it's like the worst feeling in the world for me anyways now how is she going to win friends in Westeros especially if she goes east Jorah doesn't know the answer to that but if she stays in one place her enemies will find her Gee, is that maybe because you are writing letters to Vara's indicating where and what where Danny is and what she's doing maybe Jora? Regardless, what will her enemies think when they hear about her dragons? Drogon was curled up beneath her arm as hot as a stone that has soaked all day in the blazing sun. Rhaegal and Viserion were fighting over a scrap of meat, buffeting each other with their wings as smoke hissed from their nostrils. My furious children, she thought. They must not come to harm. The comet led me to Karth for a reason. I had hoped to find my army here, but it seems that it will not be. What else remains, I ask myself. I am afraid, she realized, but I must be brave. Come tomorrow, you must go to Pyat And that is the extremely thrilling end of A Clash of Kings to Daerys 3. Mm, just going to save all my editorial comments for my opening thoughts. Emmett, what did you think of this chapter, man?
1: Well, I loved everything about this chapter except the actual plot. There we go, episode's over, you can rate and review us on, but no, seriously, there is a lot to praise here. As with Danny too, George brings some of his very best imagery to play. And it's not just beauty for beauty's sake, although there's nothing wrong with that either. You can see George using the images to work through ideas about power, performance, deception, and greed. All of them combining to rub Danny raw, even as her fortunes have, strictly speaking, still improved since the desert. The concept of Karth is clear. It's a place where everything happens on the surface and nothing happens underneath. And that is an intriguing concept for a setting. But the problem is that the storyline in Karth ends up working kind of the same way. <laughs> its pleasures are all on the surface and there's not that much depth to it.
0: Yeah, you nailed it, man. I mean, there are intriguing concepts in Karth the rival merchant factions, the pureborn, the warlocks. But they never really get much of an expansion beyond some mentions and some bare bones concepts that George throws against them. And maybe that was intentional, George's part. The beautiful exterior and sense of place and purpose in these institutions are surface only glories, surface only beauties with no with nothing underneath underneath. But. Why should we as readers, and why should I, specifically, Jeff, feel anything about this? And it's a weird comparison, but I'll bravely make it because I'm a brave human being. It is Memorial Day after all. Uh, Renly was all surface-level beauty and declarations of being the best and good without demonstrating that there was anything substantive under the surface. But I kind of felt something. I really felt something about Renly. Mostly negative, granted, but George got me emotionally invested in Renly's storyline with those affected by his death and the horror of his actual death. Again... I, I just feel nothing about Karth as a place because, as I talked about back in Danny 2, I have no sense of Karth as a place. That has not approved in these two Danny chapters so far.
1: Well said, and I think it's not really because we don't get too little information about Karth. In part, maybe it's we get too much information because George, George is working overtime to establish some sense of Karth in our heads. The opening line of Danny 3 immediately sets up the dynamic of Danny's attempts to gain access to Karthine power. The drapes kept out the dust and heat of the streets, but they could not keep out disappointment. Now, as you said, that is not the most gracefully written line (laughs) in the series, but it is very revealing. The rarefied beauty and wealth of the Carthine elite, as represented by the drapes, can save Danny and her people from the ravages of the desert. They can keep out the dust, but they can't keep out disappointment. What Danny wants is more than mere survival, more even than luxury. She wants something inside, she wants meaning, she wants fulfillment, she wants home, an end to disappointment. The problem is that Karth not only lacks these things, it's built around promising you those things and then neatly denying them to you one by one, whilst wringing you dry. The beauty on the outside contrasts with emptiness on the inside. Danny can be elevated above the material world by both money and sorcery, found in such abundant qualities in Karth, but the price is accepting, as Zero says, the denial of your dreams. If she stays here, she'll never get to Westeros, and Westeros is ultimately the source of meaning for her, even though it's every bit as much a projection as any of the deceptive faces of Karth, because she doesn't actually remember Westeros.
0: I, you, I I will admit something. I think it's an interesting turn on George's part to have the narrative mirror the meta of how Carth was established as a place that Daenerys spends the entirety of book most of book two in. Meaning, as we talked about back in Danny's first chapter, Carth is a roadblock for Danny as the Westerosi story lagged behind in the writing process, while Danny's story basically occurred. She was at the end of, of her storyline. The, at the end of the first book, was where George planned for her story to actually end up. In the first book, was not the case for the Westerosi stories. George is seemingly trying to time Danny's arrival to Westeros just perfectly, which I really appreciate, but in saying those roadblocks, George has Danny longing for her lost home, which is a, I think, a stand-in for her search for meaning. What does that actually mean to be Daenerys Targaryen, to be the mother of dragons? She's being denied that meaning now, as home is both farther away geographically, as well as farther away conceptually, conceptually and metaphysically
1: and that denial is built into how the chapter is shaped. Before we learn what it is that Danny has been attempting to do, we learn that it failed. George's in medias res structure again works to the story's benefit by cutting past the plot to the important moment of character transformation. They never saw me for a queen, she thought bitterly. I was only an afternoon's amusement, a horse girl with a curious pet. Theon three began with the birth of Theon Turncloak, And Danny 3 begins with the birth of the Beggar Queen Daenerys. Both will do anything to be anyone else. Danny is bitter and embarrassed, furious not only at those who have denied her, but at herself for wasting her time with the pureborn and their arcane rituals. That mindset is crucial to understanding what she takes away from all this. Instead of deciding that the only winning move is not to play, she decides she needs to cut through the Gordian Knot, resolving the Byzantine nature of power. That's in large part because she sincerely wants to right the wrongs of the world, but it's also because she hates this feeling of being rejected and overlooked. Worst of all, she feels like a slave again, like she was early on with Keldrogo. She's wearing a tight collar when the chapter begins, and she promptly tears it off. It was there to defend her against poisons, but the pureborn don't consider her a threat because they don't take her seriously, so she needn't have bothered. As such, it's just a collar. It's just a noose around her neck. A sorceress overcompensation with a death grip, which defines Karth in a nutshell. Gradually, we learn what has actually happened here. Danny has made an attempt to bribe the pureborn who control the Qarthian military. A chunk of that military is just what she needs to retake her father's throne. The Comet surely led her to Karth for that purpose, but how to make it happen? And that's where her gracious host, Zarazo and Daxo, stepped in. He realized that her dragons are not just unique miracles of spiritual awe, they are unique miracles of spiritual awe that people will pay through the nose to gawk at. <laughs> Karth is the center of the world, after all. A sea of eyes passes through, as Danny puts it, with their own cultures, their own currencies to spend. And it turns out what they all have in common is a fascination with dragons, and the mother of dragons as well. More and more of them come, bringing not only coin, but lace, saffron, dragonglass, animals, artistic and athletic performances. All the treasures of the world. Everything displayed on Karth's walls. Everything she could potentially rule over. One lady even brings her sorceress husband's corpse covered in dried leaves, which... That is just a wonderfully weird detail that George threw in there, but... It also communicates some interesting ideas. You can see a parallel to Danny and Drogo with the, the widow offering up the corpse of the husband to sorceress power. This time, however, it's in the context of the marketplace. As Danny said in Danny 2, everything in Karth is for sale, including people, even dead people. No one is trying to bring this one back. Instead, people think you can get power out of the corpse itself. And this is a perfect metaphor for Karth. It is a dead body Inside the glittering shell of sorcerous power. It's a dizzying rush of imagery, everything Danny is getting here. Karth is the motherlode of fantasy itself. The source of all the memorably sensuous visuals that George said defined the genre.
0: I mean, you get the sense that there's a religious awe to the dragons, which... Helpfully, really helpfully continues the narrative from the end of A Game of Thrones of Danny as the mother of dragons, as Danny as a religious figure. The, da- the dragons almost serve as kind of like relics, right? If you remember relics from medieval history, they were things like the true cross, the cup of Christ, the Ark of the Covenant, or dragons, or maybe not even medieval, medieval times, you know, Indiana Jones, or dragons in Danny's case. The messianism inherent within Daenerys Targaryen is something that really sometimes gets forgotten because we see most of her actions through her point of view chapter, and she is a very human person with very real human struggles and issues. But people laying offerings in front of Harris bringing their dead to her in hopes of Danny performing a Lazarus type miracle, shows how others view the Mother of Dragons. But as was often the case in Western and Eastern medieval Christianity, there was always those who exploited the religious reverence of the faithful to make a quick buck.
1: Very good metaphor, and you have to in, in both. The, the question of, of a religious context and in Carth, you have to question where the money all goes. What was it being spent for? It passes right through Danny's fingers. She brought these people to Carth, but the money ends up serving the elites. We get another gorgeous flood of imagery as Danny goes through all the Byzantine rules you have to follow to get an audience with those elites, the pureborn. She made the traditional sacrifice in the Temple of Memory, offered the traditional bribe to the keeper of the long list, sent the traditional persimmon to the opener of the door, and finally received the traditional blue silk slippers, summoning her to the hall of a thousand thrones. The details are so specific, it feels more like a Star Trek planet than any place real. It's all the local rituals you as Captain Picard or Kirk have to take part in if you want to conduct diplomacy. The persimmons, the slippers, the sacrifice, Danny is wearing a Carthene robe so as to not look like a Dothraki. This is Danny trying to fit in, to play by the rules of Carth. And what does she get for it? She is very politely robbed blind. (laughs) They take her money and give her nothing. She's been conned and there's nothing she can do about it. If she tries, she'll be killed. The pureborn don't care about guests, right? Why would they flinch from committing murder to hold on to their ill-gotten money? And I guarantee the Pureborn's ancestors got into power by acting the same way. The rich don't get that way by playing fair. Fraud, embezzlement, and killings to cover up said fraud and embezzlement are the tools of the trade at the top of any economic system, past, present, and in all likelihood future. They sit atop their impossibly beautiful and intricate thrones, the Pureborn do each studded with priceless gems, a wave of color and light that can make you weep to behold it, a religious sight, like you were saying about Dany and her dragons. But the pureborn are just sitting there, bored, listless, dead inside, like the corpse of the sorcerer covered with beautiful leaves. That's what Carth is, a well-appointed tomb, a sarcophagus city where you get everything you ever wanted, and so you rot. This is George flipping you the coin and showing you the dark side of fantasy. It's a beautiful image, but the image cannot sustain you. If all you do is lock yourself away with beauty and money, you'll calcify. Karth is like a city of Howard Hughes's.
0: <laughs> That's a, I love that, yeah. I mean, for all of like the overt religious and mystical aspects of Danny, she's still an outsider and still a foreigner to Karth. And as you're pointing out, that actually goes beyond her actual status as a outsider and foreigner she's not among the wealthy elite of karth and that barrier separates her more than her status as a targaryen and non-descendant of the kathi the ancient people who the karthian descend from And I'm I'm really going to butcher this one, but there was an essay I read a number of years ago, and I can't remember the title or even who wrote it. But the point of the essay was that as a member of the elite, you could fly the world from New York to London to Singapore to Paris and be part of the same class of people, speak the same language, have the same customs, belief structures, and you would basically be the same regardless of your skin color or your idea of being a foreigner in these lands. That's Really true for the pureborn of Karth, and they're the same as the great masters of Marine, to the old blood of old Volantis, to the aristocracy of Westeros. And Danny, despite being the mother of dragons, despite doing a literal miracle, is an outsider to all this for now. But from that outsider status, we start to see where the groundswell of Danny's support in Storm onwards will come from. It's not the elite who are joining with Danny in mass in Slaver's Bay. It's the same underclass of people who come to pay homage and religious devotion to her in Karth who become her children in Slaver's Bay, and they become the bedrock of her support going forward. So this is basically the, the precursor for things that will occur in Slaver's Bay. It helps us to understand the groundswell of support that Danny is going to receive in Slavers Bay. It's not just that Danny liberated them. She has actually lived their lifestyle and is now operating as a savior from that lifestyle for many of these people in Slavers Bay and seems to be representing that to some of these people coming to her in Carth.
1: You know, the history of the world is the history of class struggles. And whether or not you believe it or not, I think you can see that reflected in this part of the story. As you were saying, there are these connections among these, these far-flung different nations and cities that are brought together by power and understanding of how power works that keeps each other in power and keeps a lot of other people below them. And Danny is a challenge to that even when she's trying to play by the rules, which is, of course, going to lead her to the conclusion that maybe she should stop playing by the rules. And Danny's guide through all of this is her host, and Daxos, a rich and powerful man who desires to be more rich and powerful still, as they tend to. I say guide, but it's <laughs> unclear as to what extent Zero is actually helping Danny out here. That obscurity is intentional on George's part, of course. Karth is an endless series of false faces, false starts, false words leading nowhere. Only the insiders know what's up, and they're not sharing. Sometimes this Byzantine obscurity can seem too obscure... We're not given any information to differentiate the Tourmaline Brotherhood from the ancient guild of Spicers. Now the latter feel like a Dune reference, but while Dune definitely has its share of complex politics, maybe overly complex politics, those factions do eventually pay off. Like at the end of the first book, when Paul makes clear, hey, really the Spicing Guild runs this whole place, because they're the ones who control, you know, interplanetary uh, interstellar travel, that's what holds this whole polity together, you know, they need the spice, I control the spice, ergo, I'm actually in charge. So you see all those factions kind of coming together, but it's not really happening here. You know, I, I did find myself appreciating zero's and and Daxos more this time through. George does a good job of filtering all the themes through this character. When we first see Zero in Danny 3, he's asking if Danny has given up on her dream of Westeros, and he pours wine with a steady hand despite the jostling. Right away, we get a sense of how Zero fits smoothly into the rapturous projected dream world of Karth and how he's trying to lure Danny in. He's pouring wine as if the jostling of travel isn't even happening, as if the grounded physical toll of the road is imaginary, as if the city is a dream. The dust, the heat, the disappointment these things are real only for Danny. The people are so erudite yet inert that they feel more like objects on display, part of the visuals. As Danny puts it, Karth is full of stone cows. It's a world where the things you need, the foundations of life, the lived reality, is an inaccessible fake. That dovetails with Danny's own story. Everything she wants is so clear, but always just out of reach. A mirage like the Red Comet, leading her on and on forever. It also represents how Danny keeps coming close to culturally fitting in wherever she goes, but not quite. Only the dragons forge the bridge, for better or worse. Danny can almost grasp how Karth works. She can almost figure out what Zero is up to. She can almost get her army, her navy, her treasury, everything she needs, but not quite. And almost getting what you want can feel far worse than if you never got close at all. Danny knows that's what happened to Viserys. That it's not just that they were beggars, it's that they were, quote, splendid beggars. That was the problem. That contradiction ate away at Viserys, a self-image that did not line up with reality. As such, there is a real ambiguity to Danny holding on to that crown when she gives up all else to bribe the pureborn. On one hand, it's a statement of identity and purpose, an implied endgame that supersedes all the BS shell games of Karth. Whatever else happens here, Danny is saying, I am going to where I am queen. And that is not here. That is in Westeros. This is a pit stop. This is a seed from which I grow. Yet on the other hand, as she realizes, keeping the crown doesn't materially change her fortunes. The symbol is not the thing. The map is not the land, as John will tell Stannis. While the crown is central to Danny's shadow on a wall, convincing herself and her followers that she is a queen in fact as well as in name, it also weighs her down, figuratively as well as literally, reminding her of how far she has to go to make that reality it has the potential to inspire her to great heights, but also to make her bitter and resentful, to make her care more about legitimizing that crown than anything else. What is a crown but the one ring set on fire after all? Viserys was literally killed by a golden crown of sorts that turned out to be out of his control after all. In contrast to this crown and all it stands for is the temptation Danny feels to return to Veyas Toloro, the City of Bones from Dany I, and make the dead city bloom, as she puts it. I think that's what really moving on from the bloody and bitter past would look like, not the material rewards of Karth, not even the crown itself. But Danny can't do that, even though the example of Viserys kind of suggests that she should. Why? Because unlike Viserys, she has dragons. That is her great glory and her great tragedy. Now, 0 doesn't want her to retreat to Veyas Toloro, nor don the crown of Westeros. He wants her to stay in Carth. The side quest should be your destination, Danny. The comet brought you here not so you could get the raw materials for your destiny in Westeros. The comet brought you here because this is your destiny. Give up that dream, that fire raging within you, and become one of the beautifully decorated corpses who preside over the pitch-perfect pocket universe of Carth. On the surface, this is a very attractive offer. An end to want, to suffering to wandering the world in search of something you don't even fully understand. It's not so different from what the House of Black and White offers Arya. The House of the Undying even has ivory and ebony doors, like the House of Black and White, leading to its central chambers. At the heart of power is a living void, a beautifully decorated nothing. However, not only would Dany have to give up that which makes her who she is in order to access the eternal bliss of the void, but this scene is also just full of hints that even if she wanted to take that deal, 0 can't be trusted to keep up his end of the deal anyway. No in Karth is worth keeping. He tells her that in order to convince the pureborn, she should have wept, a public performance of overwhelming emotion that she does not feel. But if that's standard practice in Karth, why should we trust anything that Zero says? Might it not all be a bunch of crocodile tears? He even cries himself later on in this scene after admitting that it's all for show. Isn't it suspect that a consummate insider like Zaro was fooled by the pureborn, that he's surprised they took the bribes and didn't help? Maybe it's more likely he was actually in cahoots with them the whole time, and that they're divvying up the profits in secret. Even his marriage offer is phony and over the top. Danny is worldly enough to realize that Zaro is not interested in women. Her bare breast was not there to entice him, to entice the Carthene. Nor did it actually help her pass. So why did they bother dressing her up that way? To prove that they could. It signifies to the theme that Danny is on display, a passing fancy, an object for the pureborn to tut over and then forget.
0: Yeah, and that's kind of like devastating for Danny that she's yet another character in the narrative that people look at her as a, as a fancy, as something to take a look at: of look who I'm standing next to. I'm standing next to Daenerys Targaryen. She's like the supermodel that the ultra-wealthy and rich have next to them. And it's also Subtle, but I think we're intended to feel even more deeply uncomfortable over Zaro, Zo and And part of it is his strange appearance, obviously part of it is that shell game you were referencing before, but part of it too is how he keeps plying Danny with wine to get his way with her. Now he's not actually interested in having sex with Danny given his sexual orientation, but he is interested in marrying her for reasons that Jor is going to explain in just a bit. So he'll manipulate Danny any way possible, appearing as a friend, introducing her to all the right people, plying her with booze. But beyond that, he's not interested in Danny at all. He's only interested in what she can provide him, dragons.
1: Precisely. And when the image talks back, when Danny wants to be more than a sideshow making profit for others, when the source of value demands a cut of the profit... Well, that's when all the glory and beauty of Karth starts running through your fingers like water, unable to pin down the moment you try to possess it. Zero does offer Danny an army of tiny decorative soldiers made of various precious metals. Is that beautiful? Absolutely. Is that a generous gift? Objectively, yes. But it's not at all what Danny needs, and indeed, it amounts to a hilariously over the top mockery of what Danny needs. Like the crown that she's that she's holding on to, it is a symbol of the life she wants, held just out of her reach, a splinter in her mind. This is George arguing, I think, that the appearance of a completed character arc, the glittering surface of high, of high fantasy, is enough to distract, but it's not enough to fulfill. Other settings incorporate shadows on walls in A Clash of Kings. Karth is one big shadow on a wall. It's all projections, structures, images, pretenses, anything but the thing in itself. When Danny asks for ships to help her get home, Zara launches into this incredible monologue. Of trading ships, I have a few, that is so. Who can say how many? One may be sinking even now in some stormy corner of the summer sea. On the morrow, another will fall afoul of Corsairs. The next day, one of my captains may look at the wealth in his hold and think, all this should belong to me. Uh, Such are the perils of trade. Why, the longer we talk, the fewer ships I'm likely to have. I grow poorer by the instant. (laughs) Look at all of the nothing he says there. (laughs) Look at how indulgently he spills words all over the place to avoid confirming how many ships he has. Now he's not wrong that the vagaries of fortune affect us all, but by that same token, Zero could just as easily be richer as he speaks, just as easily as poorer. He's framing himself as poorer by the minute so as to avoid danny's request but also say no to it at the same time just as the pureborn did my wealth danny is not something you can pin down and make use of it's something in the air in my books in my projected ideal of myself and this resonates today as well in our in our modern systems of wealth this is often how it seems to work zero is just jerking danny around escorting her around a gleaming ouroboros of money and fancy words waiting for her to run out of momentum and be stuck. I love the detail that Ragel notices that the wine is of middling quality and hisses at it. Like, Karth even can't even taste good. It can't even offer you the fulfillment of the sensuous, orgiastic ideal it embodies. That's supposed, to w- what it, that's supposed to be what it gives you in exchange for giving everything up, and it can't even do that. You'll get nothing out of this place, Danny. and you'll especially get nothing out of this slippery character. The only thing that makes Zero sit up and take notice is the threat of the warlocks because unlike him, they play this game for keeps.
0: I think there's something else, else too that's kind of hilarious with how with Zaro is how he's able to do this whole shell game with Danny uh, playing as her best friend in Karth, providing her shelter in his manse. But you know, about the money aspect of it, Zaro concocts this whole scheme to have Danny sell off the gifts that people bring her and her dragons. But wait. Isn't Zaro like the wealthiest dude in all of Karth? Doesn't he have a manse that dwarfs Illyrio Mephistis's manse in Pentos? Why isn't he giving up his own money to help Danny bribe the Pureborn or the factions in Karth? He's uh, seemingly unwilling to part with just a few coins of his own to help Danny's cause, and he eagerly spends other people's money, probably being on the take as well as you point out really well. I love that idea, but he's not going to do anything on his own. It's, it's it's hilarious, I, I think, honestly, and it speaks to this point you were alluding to before. Danny can almost make out that Zaro isn't her friend, can almost see what Zaro is up to, but he baffles Danny with enough bullshit that she won't discover Zaro's actual status as her enemy until he shows up in Marine in a dance with dragons. For Zaro, money is power and he won't part from his own source of power by aiding Danny himself. But money isn't the only power in Karth. The warlocks possess a power that money can't buy. It's this. It's like the same sort of power that's connected with a fun magic show that Danny encounters just after she mentions the warlocks. It's funny how that's connected immediately with the mention of the warlocks and Ooh, the magic true. show. Yeah, perfect so timing. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. That's a really good point. Yeah, the circular conversation is finally interrupted by my favorite part of the chapter. My favorite scene in Karth outside the House of the Undying, the fiery ladder. This is street magic with teeth. No fraud, but the real deal. It's an awe-inspiring display of power over the elements, converting air into fire and shaping it. It allows the magician himself to climb higher than anyone below him, forcing even the very powerful to crane their necks upward. And then he turns invisible. For sheer optics, this rivals the Shadow Baby, in terms of the magic acts in *A Clash of Kings. And according to Quaithe, Danny is responsible for this even being possible. Her miracles have spawned more miracles, a sign of how remarkable she is, how she could reshape the system, potentially just by being. Yet while George focuses his narrative camera on the Shadow Babies as singular acts of spiritual horror, he zooms out on the fiery ladder to show you the con. No native are here. It's only the tourists, only the outsiders like Danny and her people. That's because the natives know that the fiery ladder is a distraction, a shadow on a wall for the audience to project themselves into. The real work is being done where the audience is not looking. Their pockets. Cut purses in league with the mage are robbing everyone blind while pointing upwards at the fiery ladder to keep their (laughs) marks distracted. That's what it all amounts to, George is saying. The magic, the miracle, the ability to break past our limited human awareness and walk among the stars, the ability to captivate a crowd with your art, it is all a scam to part you from your money, period. This is the end result of the intertwining political and magical expansions I've been talking about in the Clash of Kings. Political and magical power end up corrupting each other. What possible ideals and earnestness you could have in one is just ruined by the other.
0: I I like that explanation better than the one that I got kind of got from the scene because my takeaway is a bit less flattering to spiritually motivated people like myself. You get bamboozled by the spectacle of religion, the pretend power while the money plate gets passed around church. But I think that's only part of George's argument. Yes, there are charlatans who use magic and religion to con a few bucks off the naive. But this is this is an important point. This is an important point. George is having an argument with himself as he wrestles with his own conflicting ideas about the ethereal. As George said and I found this on Wikipedia, so you can go look it up yourself, I suppose I'm a lapsed Catholic. You would consider me an atheist or agnostic. I find religion and spirituality fascinating. I would like to believe that this isn't the end and there's something more, but I can't convince the rational part of me that makes any sense whatsoever. Part of George's fascination with religion and spirituality can be felt when we did Catelyn's fourth chapter in *The Clash of Kings with the Sept, and Catelyn's memory of what High Faith of the Seven worship was like in Riverrun. The imagery, the beauty, the rituals, they were all seemingly deeply affecting for George R. R. Martin as a youth, even if he came to believe that there was no substance behind it. But what's interesting here in Karth is that there is something more than just beautiful visuals at work in what the fire mage is doing. So I think that is what makes this more interesting than simply being a Ugh, look at all the religious people being con. while the real smart people make money off of them.
1: I think it's a door trying to understand why cons work as well as they do, how they work on us. And part of what's so just bittersweet and awful about this is beauty itself the thing that's supposed to be the core of truth the thing we long for can so easily be used against us beauty itself in the fiery ladder is part of the con the con only works because the beauty is genuine and keeps you distracted beauty is the shining tip of the spear of power coming right at you you're so captivated by the shine that you don't see the rest of the spear until it's too late When you concentrate plentiful resources in the hands of very few people, forcing the majority into a ceaseless grind to survive, the very expressive tools that make us who we are, that make life worth living, are subordinate to money. Instead of artists, we are con artists. Not because we are irredeemable, but because cons are profitable, and we have made it impossible to survive without being profitable." It is not merely the individual soul that suffers corruption as a result, but the entire culture. Look at Karth, an entire city of glittering beauty, utterly divorced from a genuine act of earnest emotion, of expression. To say that power corrupts is not to express resentful jealousy of the powerful, nor is it to assume they were just born evil. It is to say that even when you go in good, the fiery ladder burns you up, and then it vanishes, taking you along with it all that's left behind in Karth is the money you made, is the grist for the mill. You were a sideshow to keep the populace distracted for a week. You were an image, nothing more. And Danny sits watching this, watching the fiery ladder unfold at a remove like an audience member, like us, beholding not only the spectacle, but the corruption behind the spectacle, yet is powerless to do anything about it. This is a phantom menace, so to speak, that will (laughs) haunt her in Slaver's Bay. The system seems deathless. All your attempts to smash it just keep drawing you deeper into it. As Quaithe says, that man, that fire mage, he used to be a complete fraud. Now he's a genuine magician, a miracle worker thanks to Danny's miracle. But he's still just using it to rip people off. Has the world changed? Or has Danny just put power in service of the same old shit? is this a confession on george's part is this how he feels on his worst days during the most difficult parts of his career you know uh, lies in arbor aka chloe ketchum from girls gone canon mentioned in passing that karth feels like maybe george's take on hollywood on this place that just keeps promising you more than it can possibly deliver a place a, a place that replaces re, it replaces religion in a way what you were talking about a place where we can kind of project everything through this shaft of light but it always just falls apart danny inspired george to great literary heights just as she inspired this mage in universe a song of ice and fire is george's own miraculous fiery ladder but what if he vanishes at the top did his labors just ensure a preposterously corrupt and entertainment industry would profit from him and i think this reflects a larger growing trend of dread outside of the, the creative industries over the course of the late 20th century that our fancy new technological tools weren't going to save us from who we are inside. They're just going to inflate our deep-seated needs to new heights for better or worse. We're just gonna climb higher and fall farther. That's the meaning of the fiery ladder and it has ramifications for Danny and her dragons. I think this is George's ambiguity at its best, but a lot of it is filtered through Quaithe, who for me comes to represent ambiguity at its worst. After riding out to Vaez Toloro to lay her eyes on the dragons, Quaith apparently just fucked off and wandered away <laughs> and let Zero shoot his shot with Danny for a while. And then she turns up here and now in this kind of interstitial moment and doesn't particularly insist that Danny do anything, and then she leaves. <clears throat> Cut, print it, that's a scene. Look, I understand that Quaith fits the archetypal role of the soothsayer, the prophet witch the sorceress influence who drifts in and out of the hero's mind's eye. There's a lot of precedent for this in stories of all kinds, but there is a passivity and a shapelessness to her role in all of this, which I think highlights the execution issues in Karth that gets in the way of the genuinely interesting themes and imagery that we've been talking about. This is Quaid's last appearance in the book. We never see other characters interact with her after this, she is only in Danny's head. What was the point of making her real in the first place? What's the relationship between her and the warlocks, given that they both use magic? Like, Zero versus Pia, that's a clear dynamic, right? Money v. sorcery. Here are your temptations, Danny. But Quaithe doubles down on the sorcery. What's different about listening to her versus listening to the warlocks? I want to draw our attention to Quaithe's big line here, because I think it perfectly summarizes what George was going for in Carth and why it didn't quite work. As Quaithe says, You must leave the city soon, Daenerys Targaryen, or you will never be permitted to leave it at all. That's a beautiful line in Isolation. It's eerie, it's spooky, you can hear her whispering it. It clarifies Karth as a trap, that it's catching flies with honey instead of vinegar. As I said earlier, it's a golden Ouroboros just taking you around. Everything in Karth that could help Danny get home will remain behind glass. A con to separate her and everyone else from their money, funneling it upwards. If she stays, to try to access that power anyway she will slowly become absorbed into it, like a mortal eating the food of the fairy realm or wandering too deep into the Overlook Hotel. And I think you can see a metaphor for the seductive pull of power in general. If you don't leave the royal court soon, Daenerys Targaryen, if you don't leave Hollywood soon, if you don't leave Wall Street soon, you will never be permitted to leave at all because power will corrupt you. Here's the problem. It's not actually true <laughs> that if Danny doesn't leave soon, she'll never be permitted to leave Karth at all. George doesn't write the story that way. The Pureborn don't give a shit if Danny stays or goes. The Tourmaline Brotherhood don't give a shit if Danny stays or goes. The Ancient Guild of Spicers does not give a shit if Danny stays or goes. Even Zero, who invested a lot of time and effort into becoming the Father of Dragons, just tells Danny to leave town at the end of this book. In a hilariously petty series of letters. It's not very threatening. The only people who actively try to stop Danny from leaving Carth violently are the warlocks, but only after she comes to them and it all goes wrong. That's not a pre existing conspiracy that captures Danny in its fiendish web. That's a hole she falls into. Piat Pri, like Quaith, apparently just gave up on Danny after she arrived in Carth and allowed Zero to make his play for a dragon unhindered. In the show, the warlocks kidnap Danny's dragons, luring her into a trap at the House of the Undying. In that context, Quaithe's warning might actually make some sense. But in the books, if Danny goes, fuck it, I'm out of here at any point, it really doesn't seem like anyone's gonna stop her. (laughs) I think Quaithe might be full of it. I think what gets in the way here is that Karth is supposed to be both a sinister trap that will close around you forever and also an opium den for a bunch of passive stoned dreamers. You get the problem there? Maybe you have to pick one of the two. It's hard to be afraid of Karth when everyone in it is just wandering around in a cloud of weed smoke, repeating vaguely <laughs> relevant mantras to each other. The threat, the thorn beneath the beautiful unfolding rose of Karth, finally emerges with the undying themselves, who do, you know, try to eat Danny's eyes. But they awaited Danny with no guarantee she would come. This is quite a contrast with Drogo's Blood Riders in book one, or the Yunkish and Miranese nobles in book three, or the Sons of the Harpy in book five. Now there are definitely cultural veils to understand and pierce in those storylines, lots of ambiguity, but we are also given a clear sense of the stakes. We are given a clear sense that there is a threat waiting to emerge here. In Karth, the threat is asleep and dreaming and just really high. And that's appropriate for this setting, but it's maybe not the most effective threat.
0: Yeah, I think you put it really well. I mean, the issue is stakes, and the other issue is ambiguity. For ambiguity's sake, I mean, people in the fandom obsess over Quaix's prophecy, in quotation marks, to Daenerys, to go north, you must go south, to reach the west, you must go east, to go forward, you must go back, and to touch the light, you must pass, beat the shadow. What does that mean? You know what it means? Nothing. Everything. It seems that George intends for this prophecy to be retrofitted to just about any circumstance that Danny is going to encounter in the narrative. Now, there is going to be a similar dynamic at work, as we're going to unpack with the House of the Undying in our 15-part analysis of that chapter, as Danny is going to go back and forth on whether the people she encounters and betray her in the future of the narrative, whether they meet the criteria fulfilling the traitor role, whether one is this particular fire that she's lighting, etc., etc., etc. But for the House of the Undying, it's somewhat clear to me that George has concrete ideas for what these visions mean, objectively speaking. Quay's statement here is... Fuck it, cryptic soothsayer says cryptic fucking shit, and it bothers me. Look, I know that the argument that will be made back is that Miriam Mazdor ex- did the exact same thing for Dan at the end of the Game of Thrones, but I disagree with that a lot. Miriam Mazdor's statement has always read to me, as we talked about this in Danny's ninth chapter, as a giant fuck-off Danny, which has a real emotion which undergirds that statement. Yes, it's also likely true that George R. R. Martin ironically fulfills some of what Miriam Mazdor says in the narrative, or will fulfill it later on. In The Winds of Winter or A Dream of Spring. But for Quaith, why does she care? What is her investment in Danny? What's her motivation in the scene? Why should we as readers care about Quaith? What's our investment in her and her prophecies? There are none. It's aggravating. I wish Danny would have been haunted by Miriam Mazdoor's ghost for the rest of the narrative instead of Quaithe. <laughs> that would have been much more fucking interesting as this. <sighs> At the very least, though, George R. R. Martin helpfully inserts a reader avatar into the narrative who shares Arch's taste for Karth. Helpfully, Jorah Mormont, helpful? Hmm. Let's talk about that.
1: Perish the thought. But yeah, when all of the kaleidoscopic images within images fade, Danny is left alone at the end of this chapter as she was at the end of her previous chapter, with Jora Mormont, her primary supporting character whose job is to see through it all. As we said in Danny 2, I do wish Danny's Dothraki followers were more involved in this process of uncovering the truth of Karth. She sent them out to do so in Danny 2, but as we said there's been no payoff, and I think that's a missed opportunity to individualize them more. But to give Jorah some credit, he does prove himself an effective detective, having learned more about Carthine cultural mores than Zero has permitted Danny to learn. He guided her through so many rituals that didn't help her, leaving this one out. The Carthian, you see, have a wedding custom, in which the groom and the bride may ask one thing of one another, and this cannot be refused. I love how Carthian culture, built on deceptive surfaces behind which power and wealth is hoarded, allows for this one moment of generosity, in which wealth can actually be shared instead of just dangled in front of you like a mirage, And yet even this one genuine moment has been corrupted and perverted because Zero intends to use it to take one of Danny's dragons and use him to rule Karth. It wouldn't be an equal trade at all because one ship wouldn't be enough to get her home. This is George getting at the kind of asymmetric, asymmetric nature of the dragon's power. They just radically change things. One dragon does not equal one ship, even remotely. Once more, we see how Karth takes more from Danny than it gives you, like a, a bank that's obsessed with getting overdraft fees out of you or, you know, just kind of soaking you on student loans. That's the kind of system that Danny is entering here. Now, Danny was not so naive as to think Zero's protested love for her was real. Again, she could tell that he is far more interested in the boys he keeps around his palace. But she didn't know until now his true motivations for trying to marry her. Now his flowery romantic words seem like lies twice over. Again. Beauty is a scam, nothing more. Just like Zero used the miraculous awe of her dragons to raise profit for the Pureborn, just as the spectacle of the fiery ladder exists only to separate tourists from their cash, Zero's poetic words, it turned out, are just ribbons tied around swords, as Sandor says. Zero doesn't want Danny. He wants her power. He wants what she can give him. He wants the image. This stands in for the alienation and loneliness Danny feels throughout her story, the growing certainty that no one is going to love her for her.
0: And this is something I was alluding to earlier, but I mean, what's happening in Carth is what happened to Danny and Viserys writ small and their growing up experience. Remember that line from the first chapter of Dan- Daenerys Targaryen from A Game of Thrones? Danny won. At first, the magisters and archons and merchant princes were pleased to welcome the last Targaryens to their homes and tables. But as the years passed and the usurper continued to sit upon the Iron Throne, doors closed and their lives grew meaner. Years passed and they had been forced to sell their last few treasures, and even now, the coin they had gotten from their mother's crown was gone. In the alleys and wine sinks of Pentos, they called her brother the Baker King. In Karth, Danny is another exotic being, a plaything that could entertain the pureborn for an afternoon or she's a vehicle for Zara to gain power through one of her dragons. That's the true bitterness of this chapter. It's happening again, right? The dragons should have made all of this humiliation go away, but instead of making it go away, The dragons serve to only enhance it and only make her a fixture for other people to use her for whatever they need her to be, whether that's a source of power, whether it's a source of amusement. And it's humiliating, and I think that's ultimately where the bittersweet, not bittersweet, where the bitter aspect of this chapter is coming from.
1: And in the midst of all this, Danny is trying to find something genuine, and Jorah would surely protest that he loves Danny for her own sake, that he devoted himself to her before she ever birthed dragons from Drogo's pyre. But we as re-readers know that he is still sending messages to Varus at this point. Zero wants to use Danny to rule Karth, and Jorah wants to use her in order to get home. Danny is being treated like a shadow on a wall by these men, a fiery ladder they can use to get to the top. She is raw material to them, like Varus was to the man who cut him. Jorah certainly is more in- invested in Danny the individual than Zero is, but you could argue this makes his betrayal even worse. It makes it more personal. On the other hand, Jora is arguing against Danny returning to Pentos and the hospitality of Illyrio Mopatis in this scene. Well, why is he doing that, if he is still Varus and Illyrio's spy, hoping to earn himself a pardon and an end to exile? I think what we're seeing here is a transitional moment for Jorah Mormont, in which he is weighing his various loyalties and struggling to decide what to do. He has yet to cut the cord to Varus and Illyrio, that won't happen until A Storm of Swords, when he actively tells Danny, yeah, never go back to Pentos, let's completely change course, and it finally happens. He seems to be reluctant here, he still sends that one message back to them because he hasn't come up with an alternative plan that Danny's gonna go for. He wants to get Danny out of Karth and away from Zero's influence, but he doesn't want to go to a shy as Quaith advises her to do. Well why not? I mean that's a power base from which Danny could draw that wouldn't involve knuckling under to someone like Zero or Varus or Illyrio. But it's also not a power base Jorah knows anything about. <laughs> He wouldn't be any more powerful in a shy than in Karth or Pento. So these are all unacceptable options for him.
0: I mean, it's like Jorah's like a mini version of Varus here, which makes sense given that Jorah's a spy after all. I mean, he knows that his main value to Danny has been a guide for her journey. His, her, his his value is informational, explaining Dothraki customs during a Game of Thrones, seeking out wisdom and knowledge here in Karth, and a Storm of telling her about the history of Astapor, Yunkai, and Marine. But he has no knowledge that danny he has knowledge that Danny doesn't have and that's his weapon his only way to her heart right but what if danny decides to go to a place where either a jorah won't be needed like pentos or b where he has no knowledge of a shy ultimately jorah's counsel to danny is not strictly intended to be for her benefit it's for his
1: exactly remember in danny one when danny realized that jorah is falling for her projecting his lost wife Liness onto her I think that's ultimately what's driving Jorah here. He wants to be Danny's romantic partner, not just her guardian. But he doesn't feel like he has anything to offer her that would make her want the same. Jorah is not physically attractive. He knows that all too well. In terms of seductive charm, he can't match Zero, who's faking it, let alone Dario Naharis, who's not. Jorah is not a wealthy man. He's no longer a landed lord, and the only way he could be is to admit to Danny that he's been selling her out to Varus <laughs> and Illyrio this whole time. This is exactly the same problem that befell Jorah with Lanness when they got to Essos. All we need is love, he told himself. But it turns out in the real world, that's not true. It was easy for the Beatles to say that all we need is love. They had money and talent and fame. Jorah lacks all these things, and his rivals for Danny's hand and heart possess them all. The only way he stands a chance, he thinks, is to isolate Danny from all of them. Cut her off from all other men, all other sources of safety and happiness. That's why he wants to keep moving east. As long as we keep moving, as long as I keep Linesse 2.0 from meeting her own merchant prince, I have a chance. So, even though Jorah is right that neither Zero nor Illyrio can be trusted, even though it is probably a good idea for Danny to avoid a shy, Jorah does not have Danny's best interests in mind. He is trying to leave her no choice but his arms, in multiple senses of the word. Jorah is not wrong that most Westeros- that most Westerosi will see Dany as a foreign invader and that this concern will only grow if she invades at the head of a sellsword army. But when Dany reasonably points out that however difficult such a task might be, it will only get more difficult if she goes east, Jorah has no response. Which is him all but admitting that he doesn't really care if she ever takes the Iron Throne. So is he really that different from Zero in the end? They're both trying to distract her from what she really wants. Hoping she will fulfill their own desires instead. Now, what Jora wants, love and home, is more relatable, I think, than what Zero wants, which is just money and power. But they're both lying to Danny to get it. And Jorah is a total hypocrite when he says that Zero is a liar and Illyrio sold her to Drogo. Jorah is lying to Danny all the time. Jorah is selling her to a spy network as he speaks. It's just like when he said in book one that the small folk wish to be left alone by the high lords when they play their Game of Thrones. You mean like when you enslaved yours? <laughs> Jorah's external vision is clear, but his internal vision is blind. He can see all the sins of the world's power structures, but he can't see how he is part of them all, which is a relevant dilemma for Danny's arc from Meereen Master forward. Ironically, Jorah kind of fits in Karth just fine in this regard. He may not look or sound or smell like Zarozo and Daxos, but he acts like him. And isn't that what matters most, what we do? Karth is a place, but it's also a state of mind. Whenever you hide the substance behind a deceptive image, you have brought Karth with you, its values wherever you are. And so Danny falls back on the question that haunted her when she swam in Zero's pool in Danny 2. Why did the comment lead me here? Did it lead me here? Danny's own blind spot, the ugly truth beneath the beauty, something she refuses to look at, is that the comet didn't lead her anywhere because it's a comet. Just like how there's no substance beneath the golden, glittering surface of Karth, there's no objective meaning to that awe inspiring Rorschach blot in the sky. Danny has projected meaning into it, as the tourists were projecting into the fiery ladder, as Zero and Jorah both project into her. She needs the comet to be a symbol a sign and signifier of her rise, a reflection of the miracle of dragon birth, But Karth has refused to respect that miracle, treating it as a money pit at best, a sideshow distraction at worst. Her dragons haven't changed the system. They've been absorbed into it like anything else, like her if she's not careful. Danny, however, can't accept the idea that the universe is essentially random, with no one waiting behind the curtain. Her suffering and the suffering of others is less frightening to her than the idea that the suffering didn't mean anything. So instead, she changes the Comet's meaning, as we were talking about in our first Forsaken episode, how Aaron changes the voice of the Drowned God to suit his own desires while pretending it's still the constant word of God. Since Karth hasn't delivered me my army, Danny thinks, but instead keeps dangling it just out of reach, well, the Comet must have not brought me here for my army at all. It's the self-fulfilling logic of prophecy, seductive despite its obvious absurdity. Instead she thinks the comet must have brought me here for something else magical power perhaps instead of military might no 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 it's about revelation meaning truth that's why i'm here
0: i mean isn't danny kind of like accidentally correct in that because <laughs> yeah. we're going to find out in the house of the dying in the next chapter she does find revelation meaning and truth in those things although at the same time even as she's finding revelation meaning and truth she's also finding continued ambiguity in the house of the undying and is like, as I was referencing before consistently being like, is this the treason for gold? Is this the treason for blood? Is this the fire I must light? So is it actually revelation, meaning in truth? It's a question we'll unpack when we get to Danny's fourth chapter and we'll continue to unpack throughout Danny's journey in a song of ice and fire. But it does strike me that even though it, the comments, just a fucking comment, it did lead her to Carth at some level, even if it wasn't like objectively assembled. George R. R. Martin led the com. Had her go follow the comet in order for her to end up in the house of the undying to get this great prophecy, which ends up beguiling the fandom and has beguiled the fandom since 1998.
1: True, but I mean, also the comet was the only way she could go. Which she thinks to herself, you know, there was any, any other way was death. Carth was only was always her only option. Even if the comet had never been there, she would have gone that way anyway. But the comet makes her think it was important, and I think she's gotten cause and effect kind of confused there, quite fatally, quite tragically. And so Danny decides to visit Piat Pri and the Warlocks at the House of the Undying, and that's good news for us because the House of the Undying absolutely fucking rules. But I must confess, my excitement is once again tempered by the way in which George structures the Carthian storyline. There is no urgency to Danny's decision to consult the Warlocks. She just shrugs and decides it's the next logical move. It's like a kid is proceeding down the street at trick or treat and goes, "That's the last house, last house on the block. I guess we're going there next." You can see why the writers and show winners on Game of Thrones decided to have the warlocks kidnap the dragons instead. It's hard for the House of the Undying to feel like a trap when Danny just gradually wanders in there on her own time, with no particular purpose. At least with Zero and the Pureborn, it's clear what Danny is trying to accomplish. But when we get to the House of the Undying, it feels like Danny is assuming there must be something up with these guys, let's go see what it is. And that sensation that we might as well do this sensation is what saps the drama from Karth for me. It's, and then this, and then this, storytelling, instead of, but then this, so then this, which is more of what we get from her on the Dothraki Sea or in Slaver's Bay. And as I've said, I can see how this approach fits the setting. It is a city built on beautiful stasis, so it does make sense for Danny to wander around in a daze, looking at stuff. George is trying to depict boredom. He is trying to show us that power and wealth aren't actually fulfilling, aren't actually interesting on their own. And if anything, he might have succeeded all too well.
0: Yeah, he succeeds way too well with Karth, with and so we don't have a sense of urgency in the narrative itself. At the same time, when Danny actually does have power, when she finds that power and wealth in Slaver's Bay, She finds her own status to be similar to that of the pureborn, of Zorozo and of all these characters, as she thinks in her first chapter in A Dance with Dragons. The slippers the Butcher King had sent her had grown too uncomfortable. Danny kicked them off and sat with one foot tucked beneath her and the other swinging back and forth. It was not a very regal pose, but she was tired of being regal. The crown had given her a headache, and her buttocks had gone to sleep. This boredom with ruling and power and wealth... It's all going to lead to Danny's seduction to the dragon side of Persona at the end of A Dance with Dragons, because she's going to find that war, violence is much more exciting than peace, which is tepid, boring, and stale. And I think this is what has happened with the car theme here. So I guess it's an interest I guess it's an interesting narrative turn to have Danny start to reflect some of what the pureborn, some of what Zo and Doxus experience in the narrative, even though it's not that interesting. Even though boredom as a narrative turn is not that interesting by its own nature, I guess. At this, so it makes Karth just a little bit less fulfilling than what Danny's arc is going for, which is much more vibrant, much more pushing Danny in the direction of her future plot and story action.
1: But I can see the connection you're drawing here about the mindset she takes out of Karth, and I think that is interesting. I think Karth does does fulfill that role for Danny, and I think that is important. So, shifting into foreshadowing and groundwork, uh, Zara does bring up the Sorrowful Men when he's talking about why Danny can't keep pushing things with the Pureborn. The Sorrowful Men are a guild of assassins in town and it's hinted that the Pureborn will hire them to go after Danny if she tries to get her money back. It's a nice little switcheroo on George's part because the Sorrowful Men will indeed go after Danny in her final chapter in the book, to no avail, but they would be hired by the warlocks, not the Pureborn. So that's that's George pulling out the rug from underneath
0: us. I mean, the Sorrowful Men again are an, an interesting concept, conceptually they're an interesting group of assassins. Because the Starful men make one appearance in the narrative, and we don't have never seen them ever again after that. I think there's no mention I think they mentioned they there may be mentioned once in a dance with Dragons after Danny settles down in Marine, but these guys are there for a moment and then they're gone, but they're very much polite, like, which is much like the guys. rest
1: of Garth, yes exactly, <laughs> and there are some interesting things in concept about them that yeah, I'll bring up a Danny Five, but yeah, an execution not terribly threatening
0: mm-hmm. So second piece of foreshadowing groundwork, this is not the last time that Danny will attempt to adopt the fashions of her host city to win over its ruling class. Remember in Marine when she dons the Tokar and the rabbit ears? And this becomes a symbolic gesture to show Danny is one of the Maranese, one of the very upper class of, of Maranese, a great master herself. Of course, she tosses the poppy ears and Tokar aside to run out to Drogon at Daznak's pit, just as she rips off the high collar and gets into her usual attire as soon as she gets back to Zaro's place here. Hashtag symbolism.
1: Exactly, it's. Uh, I love that uh, George gets that across through clothes. You know, he does some interesting work with the fashion of like what Ned wears, what Cersei wears. But he's very deliberate, direct, and political about it when it comes to what Danny wears in A *Dance with Dragons*. And it is an interesting connection that we see here. Danny also thinks to herself in this chapter that her dragons will lay waste to her kingdom if they're not trained, and she doesn't know how to train them. Oh boy, <laughs> we really should have seen this coming, shouldn't we have? Mm-hmm.
0: I think maybe we should have seen Maybe it not in
1: anger but we really should have seen it coming.
0: It's interesting. I think like she talks about that her dragons aren't large enough to be ridden at this point and aren't large enough to actually take the seven kingdoms in this chapter. Because George, I think, at this point had planned to have a five-year gap between the end of A Storm of Swords and Dance with Dragons, and that would have let her, the dragons, be much larger to be ridden. But then George just kind of, you know, papered over that when he actually got to A Dance of Dragons, which picks up immediately after A Storm of Swords and has a Drogon being just large enough for Danny to ride and is uh, just large enough to kill what is it, like three hundred people in Dazznik's pit is what's reported in Barrison's first chapter in a dance of Dragons. Something crazy
1: like that. But yeah, one of the advantages of dragons being magical creatures and the rules being vague is like they grow on George's time, as he needs them to. <laughs> and that's perfectly fine. These are not you know, he's he's not a hortic, you know, he's not a, a farmer or a horticulturist of any kind, so he's not exactly concerned with with that being realistic. They're dragons that they can grow as he needs them to and in in service of Danny's arc, which is always what they do. So, so shifting to our discussion portion of the episode a uh, tantalizing possibility is dangled in front of Daenerys in this uh, chapter by Quaithe that Jor, she discussed it with Jor later the possibility of going to Ashai, the far city by the shadow as far east as the maps go even though George has you know discussed and hinted at lands beyond it Shy is kind of like one, one pole of the world as, as the land of always winter is the fire equivalent of it so it leads to a tantalizing question of what might have gone down at Ashai if Dany had indeed journeyed there or taken Quaithe's advice what would that have been?
0: It's an interesting question, I think. And I think that it's uh, interesting too, because it's a place that we're not going to actually visit in, in A Song of Ice and Fire in the narrative proper. Because, first things first, George might have thought about going to a shy very early on in writing A Song of Ice and Fire. But in 2008, he stated definitively, he stated definitively that we would only see a shy in, quote, flashback in memory, if at all. And as for the venue for seeing a Shy in flashback, George R. Barton said in 2016 that Melisander chapters in The Winds of Winter would have more information about a Shy. So that's likely going to be the vantage point that we're going to see a Shy in the future of the story. And we saw a little bit of it in Melisandre's one chapter in A Dance of Dragons. As for why George R. R. Martin abandoned Danny going to a shy, that potential plot line, I think a, an explanation might be that George very early on thought about Danny going to Westeros by circumventing the globe, doing the one thing that no one has ever done before. But then he ended up abandoning this in favor of Carth, and I think more likely abandoned this in favor of the Slaver's Bay arc and of actually going westward. So. Yeah, we're not going to go into a shy in the narrative, but what might have happened if Danny had gone there? I, I, the question I have do you think that George had all of the ideas about a shy in mind that he ends up writing in The World of Ice and Fire, this place where people can't, you know, the, there's no children in a shy, Is the being the big one, all these types of things? Would that have been an interesting dynamic for Danny to experience being the mother of dragons, bringing her children to a shy?
1: I don't know if he had all the details worked out, but the idea of a shy seems pretty clear. I think from the start, like I said, it's it's one of the poles of the world, one of the hinges of the world. It's the source of fire, so to speak, in the same way that the land of always winter, the lands beyond the wall, is the source of ice. And I think, uh, as I've said before, I think I understand why George ultimately made that decision, but I think it's a missed opportunity because it is, you know, the source of this, this insane metaphysical element and. You know, metaphor for all these emotions of passion and anger that drive so much of the story and it makes sense for us to go there especially you know as with Bran if we're going farther north of the wall then again a lot of Bran's visions and projections north of the wall are just that they're not him really going there maybe that'll work well with Melisandre kind of giving us dreams and flashbacks of a shot I I could see that working really well I think in terms of what it would have been like there I think it you know obviously would have been a creepy horror show and I have to imagine that you know Danny would be trying to get out with her soul intact in the same way that Arya tries to get out of Harrenhal with her soul intact and in both cases maybe would have lingered a little bit in them like ah, this is you know a shine would have been in the original conception where Dany learns to go too far or where Dany, you know, gives gives full range to her, the worst angels of her nature instead of the best and kind of takes that back to Westeros, takes some corruption back to Westeros. Maybe it's where she was supposed to encounter the faith of R'hllor for the first time. That seems hmm. to have been retrofitted to Valantis, which def- Volantis didn't seem to be a big deal until it suddenly became one. Maybe this is why. Maybe originally, like the whole Red Temple, you're part of the Fire God business now. Daenerys was supposed to happen in a shy i think something that strikes me as interesting and i wonder what you think about this is i wonder if if danny had gone to a shy whether we might appreciate karth more and whether Hmm. we might think of karth as more a stepping stone to a shy specifically like as it stands karth is now the farthest east we go in the story and the way it's framed here that doesn't feel like it should be like it's framed as the center of the world where all the bridges meet maybe because George is thinking of you know in his head like you know got slaver's bay to the west of karth and the dothraki sea and then to the east of Karth you've got a shy like this is the center of where danny will go in essos and maybe Karth was supposed to feel like an in-between world, like you've got the political world of Slavers Bay, the magical world of Ashai and Karth is where they meet. So, do you think maybe we would have, maybe do you think maybe Carth would feel less dangling if it was supposed to be our bridge
0: to shy? Yeah, I, I, th- I think that's that's a interesting idea, and I and I agree that Karth would have been potentially more interesting because you have Danny's House of the Undying, which serves as one aspect of Danny being like, wow, there's all sorts of. Weird mystical stuff that is happening in Karth and that's only going to balloon into something that is even greater and more um, mystical when we get too mm-hmm. shy, right? I, yeah, I, I, I think like when you look at an arc, right? It's supposed, supposed to be like. From small beginnings, you kind of rise up in terms of like the story construction to greater revelations in the future. I think shy would have been an interesting way to to look at um, at Karth. And, and I think like, you know, it, in a weird way, it's this it's the same way that I think a lot of folks look askance at Feast and Dance because they don't have the Winds of Winter in, in hand. So that tends to right. be. That's a great comparison. Yeah. It tends to be like, oh, well, because we don't, because Dance of Dragons ends on a bunch of cliffhangers, which is partially true, partially not. That we, uh, people are like, oh, this book sucks compared to the overall oeuvre of of A Song of Ice and Fire. So would Shia have been actually interesting and cool? It could have been. Something I think is interesting about Danny's story is that the darkness for her is she does experience a lot of like the evil and the corruption of the worlds we saw in the Dothraki Sea, as we see in Karth, as we are definitely going to see in Slaver's Bay. But her own inner, inner, turmoil, inner turmoil, her own inner darkness is all kind of like emanating from her own desires. Is that more interesting to have that be the basis for her having a darker mentality coming into the of winner than rather her just going to a shy and coming into this mystical spot in the world and being sure. corrupted by the exterior forces? I, I kind of think That's the internal is, more, is better than the external. But what are your thoughts?
1: Well, it is because you, you make, uh, bring up a good point that really, yeah, the the threat in Danny's chapters going forward is more worried about what she's going to do more than her opponents, because her opponents tend to be losers who are mostly there <laughs> to be made fun of, you know, when you get to Slaver's Bay. None of those guys are, are uh, menacing or feel like they're going to be like, you know, a boss battle for Daenerys. Whereas shy, you know, even if there's not one central character that she has to deal with, that would feel much more directly threatening than Danny's coming up against. I could see how that could be very compelling, but I could also see that, yeah, maybe that's not the structure really George wants for Daenerys' character. And maybe... It's maybe it works better to have her opponents be like you know like uh, uh, paper tigers, and and the worry is what's what's gonna what she's gonna do when she's she's done dealing with them. So that's that that's that's an interesting case. I think that's that's that 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 you know again I, I think overall I really like the, the the direction George takes Danny's story. I think it would have been cool to see a shy just because I like that as a setting. As a concept, and I think it might have felt there's there's a balance I think could have worked with a shy having that in the story again a balance to the land of always winter a kind of balance to, to going beyond Carth I think it's it's it, it's it certain things are left dangling as a result but I could also see how it it, it it suits the story better so I don't I don't think I don't think it's overall a weakness even though I can't wonder I can't help but wonder what might have been
0: yeah okay I can definitely see why why people and you yourself would wonder why we didn't go to a shy and. You know, I, I think uh, for those of you who have not read it, the World of Ice and Fire probably the best chapter in all of the World of Ice and Fire is that whole chapter which deals with. That'll the shy. do.
1: That'll uh, do. It's that's just enough. It's true. It's
0: it, it just has that great horror aspect which George loves to play with in a Song of Ice and Fire, but he makes it really interesting in in writing this chapter about a shy in the World of Ice and Fire. So check it out if you're not if you're not checked that out already. But I think that about wraps us up for this episode on a Clash of Kings Daenerys 3. As always, thank you so much for listening. And thank you to all of those of you who apparently we got over 100 people who are watching tonight on YouTube on our, on our corn stream live stream. And really appreciate all of you guys tuning in, guys and gals tuning in tonight. We really appreciate that. If you guys have the chance, please rate and review us Snap a podcast, Google Play, SoundCloud, Podbean, Spotify, anywhere and everywhere where you find our podcasts.
1: Check out our Patreon at patreon.com slash notacastASOIAF or follow us on Twitter at notacastASOIAF. Shoot us an email at notacastASOIAF at gmail.com.
0: You can find me at poor Quentin on Twitter or at poorquentin.com. And you can find me at Beefish on Twitter, Beefish on Reddit, and my website is warsandpoliticsoficeandfire.wordpress.com.
1: We want to shout out and thank our high lords and ladies on Patreon. Lord of the Squishers and Warden of the Deep, Lady of a Thousand Words, Septon Eastwood of Introvert Isle, Septon Maribel, the Shoeless Sage, Sister Winter, Lady of the Wolfswood, Nessie the Elusive, Warden of the Neck, Defender of the North and Keeper of Secrets, Sandy the Dragon, Blood of Queen Daenerys and Lady of Jamison, Lady Britt, Bastard Mistress of Heron Hall. Sir Thomas the Raven Knight, Lord of Blackwood. Lady Dillsdale, the Star Spear of Crescent Hill. Sir Way of Course. Matt Warden of the Sanguine Shore. Lord Mark Connington, Heir to Griffin's Roost. Lord Sam Kay, Sir Michael Mertens. Wisdom Benjicott, Alchemist of Sets and Quanta, Mage of the Arts of Bool and the Morgan. Tibbs the Great of House Catnapping. Lord J. Manderley, Baker of the Fray Pies. Septon, Mariful Head of Hair. Lady Silverwing. Joe Snow, King of the Metro-North and Protector of the Tri-State, and K'Bath the Unfrozen, Lord of the Bricks and Castle Crimson Light. Thank you so much to all our High Lords and Ladies.
0: Absolutely. Thank you all very, very much. We really, really appreciate your support month in and month out. So, join us next week for a Clash of Kings Tyrion 9, my favorite Tyrion chapter in Clash of Kings, in which the streets run red as the starving small folk rise up against their Lannister oppressors. Guess that's it, man. We're done with the Lannisters. They're all fucked up after this
1: chapter, right? They're taken care of. That's that. But I totally agree. This is my favorite Tyrion chapter in The Clash of Kings. It's it's a beautiful coming together of so many things that have been rumbling just under the surface. It's one of the great action set pieces in the story, too. So it's going to be a fun time. Yeah. I was about I was going to say it's going to be a riot, and then I realized that's probably <laughs> no.
0: not a good word choice. Is it, Emmett? No. Hashtag no, it's not. Riot Watch. Hashtag Riot Watch. Oh, it's exactly. going to be so much fun. Might even be two parts. We'll find out as we end up uh, unpacking this episode itself. So thank you so much for listening, thank you so much for watching us and supporting us on Patreon, and we will see you guys next week.